Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Matthew, chapter 25, is where I want to direct your attention this morning as uh, we continue walking through this uh, Gospel. Uh, It's good, as I look out, to see our friends Dick and Sue with us today. They have plans. He does, has plans to leave the country very soon, and uh, we wish him Godspeed as he goes. He is among those many who have been hoping for uh, greater openness with international travel, so uh, it is good to see him here. And uh, she'll be sticking around in the States for a few more months. Uh, but uh, at least, Lord willing, that's the plan today. Um, yes, man proposes, COVID disposes. So today, uh, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that, according to my very unscientific analysis, is the favorite passage of most of our politicians. Uh, this, is a, uh, this is a passage that they often allude to, and I wonder if you will recognize it uh, when we read it. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you look after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I, was, I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Do you recognize any phrases from one of your uh, uh, recent stump speech? Um, The least of these is a phrase that appears often in uh, political speeches as we think about platforms and policies and governmental action. Why is this a favorite passage in the public square? And if, if, if it is a favorite passage in the public square, should it be more of a favorite for us too? You might accuse me of undue cynicism if I say uh, that it seems like our uh, political leaders are not as anxious to quote Jesus and the apostles when it comes to marriage and human sexuality. But the phrase least of these is always popular. 
this passage matters. Does it matter to us as much as it should? And if it doesn't, why not? I wonder. Today, we're going to pick up again this fifth sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. You'll remember that Matthew organized his book, his telling of the life of Jesus, roughly chronologically, begins with his birth and ends with his death and resurrection. But he punctuates his life of Jesus by recording for us five lengthy sermons that the Lord Jesus preached. And he builds the rest of his book kind of around that. This is the last message, the last teaching from the Lord Jesus. Because of that, I I think it's a key text for discipleship. Uh, It's a final time, too, that we're going to look at this lengthy sermon about the end times. It has to be the final time because Matthew 24 is about to fall out of my Bible. I've turned there so much. Uh, You remember, some of you have noticed a pattern as we go through this. I recognize this is about the end times, an issue in the Bible we wish we knew more about. All Christians agree that history as we know it will end when Jesus returns. But all Christians, both in the world and in our church, we don't agree about all the details surrounding the circumstances of his return. I've tried to keep that in mind as we've walked through this chapter, these chapters. Sometimes I have said, well, some people believe this and some people believe this. And, and here then, giving those views sometimes, I try to f- uh, bring out the principles that apply to us, despite our differences about our view of the circumstances. I'm not sure, I'm still thinking about this, I'm not sure if that's the best approach to take to eschatological passages, to, to uh, be so um, uh, open about s- of multiple views. I'm not sure if that's the best strategy. I'm going to use it one more time, though, today. <laughs> what I want to do as we walk, come to this passage, this very important passage, is I want to talk with you about three approaches to the text that followers of Jesus have taken. And then I want to uh, apply them, seek to apply. Actually, I'm going to give you four other principles that are related. that are also in this passage that emerge from this text that teach us about life in this world. I should warn you as we come to these three approaches, two of them are insider debates. Two of them are had by uh, debates, interpretations, approaches, had by people who pour over the Bible and really want to understand what it says. Uh, They're insider debates. The third approach that I want to talk about is much more popular in our world, but I think is at diametric, uh, diametric opposition to the rest of what Jesus and the apostles have taught. Uh, we're going to compare apples and apples and then apples and oranges. That's what we're going to get after. When you come to these three approaches, you have to ask and answer, all of them have to ask and answer three basic questions. First, who are the all the nations that Jesus talks about in verse 32? When he comes, all the nations will be gathered before him. Who is he talking about in verse 32? Then, secondly, what does he mean when he says, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine? Who's he talking about there? Who's that? And then, what's the relationship between these deeds that are done and the entrance into or exclusion from the kingdom that he promises? Is that how you get into the kingdom, by doing these things? Hmm. Those are the questions that we're going to try and answer as we look at these three different approaches, three different approaches, uh, interpretations of this text. Here's the first one. Uh, Jesus is clear that when he returns, there's going to be judgment. And some people think that the emphasis of this passage is that there will be in that day, first approach, 
the judgment of Gentile nations based on how they treat Jews during the tribulation. That's a mouthful. Let me see if I can explain that. This is the view that I was taught. It's, it's the one uh, towards which I still lean. I'm going to show you, I'm going to talk about it, and then I'm going to give you the biggest textual speed bump that this view has. Uh, again, all Christians believe that Jesus is coming back, and he makes a reference to that in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes, that's the subject. Earlier in the sermon, he's been giving signs of his coming. And, and he tells us, and all Christians believe this, before he comes, it is going to be a time of great trouble on the earth. Now, here's where we start to disagree. There are some Christians, I'm among them, who believe that the event described in 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture, Jesus is going to come and call the church to be with him, him, with himself in heaven before that time of greater tribulation begins. And the purpose of that tribulation is two things. One, there's going to be great judgment on the earth. The book of Revelation talks about this. And then secondly, the other thing that's going to happen during that revelation while the church is in heaven, the, uh, on the earth, there are going to be a massive turning of the Jewish people to Jesus as Savior. The number of Jews today on the earth who recognize and worship Jesus as Savior and Lord is very small. But during that tribulation period, there will be a great turning of those dear men and women to Jesus. It's going to be a fulfillment, preparation of his return, a fulfillment of what he said in Matthew 23, 39. Look what Matthew 23, 39 says. Jesus says, for I tell you, you, speaking to the Jewish residents of Jerusalem, will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Before he comes, great evangelistic fruitfulness among the Jewish people of the earth as they turn to Jesus as Savior. And when he comes back, ho-ho, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Jesus here is describing a judgment that's going to take place after that period of time. It's just one of the judgments that Jesus describes. He's going to sit on his throne, King Jesus is. I, I think of the promise that God made to David, King David in the Old Testament, about one of his descendants ruling on his throne. King Jesus is going to sit on his throne, and all before him, who's going to come? All the nations, that is, those who have lived on the earth during the tribulation period, and they're going to, the ones who survived the judgment. And Jesus is going to judge them. He's going to judge them how the basis is how they treated the Jewish people during that period of tribulation. It's not only going to be a time in which the Jews turn to Jesus, but in which they suffer great persecution. And how did non-Jews treat them? That's going to be the question. Treat the ones who were running and sick and in prison and hungry. How, how did you treat, Jesus says, the Jews? And the reward is going to be entrance into the earthly kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. This is one approach I think has much to commend it. It knits together various threads of the New Testament as we put together our understanding of what's going to happen. Here's the great challenge of it, though, and the, the, the greatest uh, uh, exegetical speed bump of this interpretation. It's the use of the word, my brothers. When Jesus says, my brothers and sisters. Now, um, according to this view, he would be talking about his fellow Jews, Jesus being Jewish, his fellow Jews. The problem is Matthew never uses the word brothers to refer to Jesus' fellow Jews. That's the problem. 
This would be a unique use of the word brother in Matthew if that's who he's talking about. Most of the time in the book of Matthew, most, half of the time in the book of Matthew, when the word brother appears, it's speaking about someone's literal brother. James and John, the disciples, are brothers. Herod, King Herod, has a brother named Philip, and it talks about his brother, uh, those relationships. The other half of the time, though, the Bible talks about brotherhood, brothers and sisters, in the spiritual community of faith, the family of faith. Not Jesus' ethnic brothers, but brothers and sisters in the family of faith. Here's an example, and I'm going to show you some more verses about this later. But look what Matthew 12 says, quoting, uh, speaking, describing the scene in Jesus' life. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside, his literal brothers and his mother, Mary and the boys. Uh, That would be a good name for a band. His mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So you might think, Jesus here, it's possible. It's a good interpretation of this text to think about a judgment of those who survived the tribulation in that day to come as to how they treated the Jewish people. That's possible. One interpretation. Here's another approach that followers of Jesus have taken to this passage. And and they believe that Jesus here is talking about a judgment of all people to come, judgment of all people based on how they treated Christians. Christians. Um, This view, in this view, most often, the rapture is not a separate event. The church is going to be here on the earth when Jesus comes. And the presumption of the text is that there will be people, also followers of Jesus, who care for their fellow Christians who are suffering during that time before Jesus comes back. And the presumption of the text is how you treat Christians is a reflection of how you treat or how you respond to Jesus. Your faith in Jesus himself will show up in how you treat your fellow believers, especially those who are suffering and struggling, like he mentions here in this text. Um, this sounds, in this, if this is true, this sounds very much like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Look at Matthew 10, 40 to 42. Anyone, Jesus says, who welcomes you, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me, his father. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, here or there, least of these, little ones, least of these, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. There is something about how you treat fellow believers that is a reflection of your regard, your reverence for Jesus himself. This shows up in the book of Acts a little bit when Saul, who became Paul the apostle, when Saul's on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians, the Lord Jesus, the glory of the Lord Jesus appears to him. And look what happens in Acts chapter 9, how Jesus speaks. Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now, Jesus was ascended into heaven by this time. 
Saul isn't persecuting him, but he's persecuting Jesus' people. There's a connection between how you treat uh, Jesus' people and your reverence for him. Now, the problem with this interpretation is that it tends to put all of the judgments in the Bible that are described quite differently together into one scene, this being it. And I don't think that's possible. But it does, it does take the brotherhood passages seriously. I want to read three more of them quickly. Remember Matthew, when he uses the word brother, he's talking about the family of faith. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault in the church. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. Or Matthew 23, 8, but you are not to be called, Jesus said, Rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And then Matthew 28, 10, after the resurrection, Jesus said to them, uh, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. So maybe he's talking about an end times judgment about how people have responded to Christians. Your, your, how you treat the least of these fellow believers is uh, a sign of how you revere Jesus. That's possible. Here's a third approach to the text. It's the one that's most often thought of in political context the judgment of all people based on how they treat the needy. The judgment of all people based on how they treat the needy, the poor, the neglected, the forgotten, the imprisoned, the sick. Again, this is the, the view that prevails when this chapter is put to political use. It's the view that prevails under those circumstances, even though I'm not sure they would affirm our politicians everything that I'm going to say uh, in the next few minutes about that interpretation. At the end of the age, all people must stand before Jesus, and the view is your eternal destiny is based on how you treat the least. If you want to be in heaven, if you want to go to heaven, if you want God's approval, you have to treat well the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the sick, the prisoners. It's not my view. It has significant problems, but it does accurately reflect God's heart for broken and hurting people. Four times in this passage, we get this list. Feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, uh, care for the sick, visit the prisoners, clothe the naked, welcome the strangers. Four times that's repeated in this passage. Why? Because Matthew wants you to think about how carefully, how, how significant these are as an expression of discipleship. What do followers of Jesus do? Reflecting the heart of God we feed the hungry, we clothe the naked, we welcome the stranger, we uh, visit the prisoners, we care for the sick. That's, that's just a basic part of discipleship, and it's a reflection of God's own heart. Remember how Jesus introduced himself in Luke chapter 4? Look what it says. The Spirit of the Lord, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he's quoting from Isaiah 61 here. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoner, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Or James 1.27, look what it says. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. God has a special place in his heart for orphans and widows. Psalm 138.6, though the Lord is exalted, He's exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. The lofty, he sees them from afar. He, he cares. 
God cares. That's beautiful. It should be beautiful to us. Actually, it's most beautiful to you if you're already a Christian or have been heavily influenced by Christianity because the Romans don't find this talk about caring for hungry, sick people attractive at all. It's not very evolutionary, is it? It's not very savvy when it comes to evolutionary science, right? Because evolution says that, we, that um, one of the principles is the survival of the fittest. These are not fit people. Hungry people, sick people, imprisoned people, strange people. They're not fit people. Christianity is not about the survival of the fittest. It's about the sacrifice of the fittest for the weak's sake. This is beautiful. If you find this to be beautiful, you find it to be beautiful because you are either a Christian or because you've been heavily influenced by Christianity, maybe against your will. (laughs) Now, this view, uh, this is how you get into heaven by caring for the needy. Uh, It um, fails, it has significant problems. It fails the my brother's test because this passage is not about needy people in general. God does care about the poor and the brokenhearted. He does have a special place in his heart for the widows and orphans, but this is not the passage that you would go to to teach that. It's a classic example of the right truth from the wrong text, which can happen a lot. Hopefully not behind this pulpit, but it can happen. But this is not about the needy in general. And the other problem with this view, major problem, is it changes the way the Bible talks about how human beings receive eternal life. You notice in the passage, there's no cross in this passage. There's no atonement in this passage, no grace, no faith in this passage. Um, To think that this is the, the way you receive eternal life is to divert radically from the rest of the teaching of Jesus and the apostles about eternal life. It does match the assumption that most people have. Most people believe that your eternal destiny is based on what you do. Jesus has come and he's changed the world by telling us to be kind and generous and compassionate. And so the saying most people believe, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to have eternal life, then you need to be kind and compassionate and gracious, especially to the least in society. That's what most people believe, but that's not what the Bible teaches, and it's actually not even what this passage is about. Do you notice in verse um, 37 and following, the sheep, the ones who are welcomed into the, the eternal life, are surprised. Jesus says, well done, and they say, oh, what did we do? If they were trying to earn their way into eternal life by these good works, they would have instead said to Jesus, oh, I'm glad you noticed. I've been working so hard, man. I have visited prisoners and I've cared for the sick and I've fed the hungry all for this moment so that you would give me eternal life. And I'm glad you saw that. I'm glad you noticed because I have been working hard. That's not what they say. They, said, they say instead, what? What are you talking about? I don't know. I don't remember that, right? They're not trying to earn their way in. They're surprised. And uh, did you notice to verse 34 what he says about the kingdom that they're invited into? It's an inheritance. Do you earn an inheritance? No. But then he says, it's the kingdom prepared for you when? 
since the creation of the world, before you had the chance to do any good works, before you even had a chance to do good works, the kingdom's been prepared for you. You didn't earn your way in by your good works. Your place in eternity is not reserved for you based on your performance. Now, those are three approaches to the text. Two of them, the first two, cohere with the rest of the New Testament. Uh, The third one uh, contradicts what Jesus and the apostles said about eternal life elsewhere in the Bible. You should cringe a little bit when our politicians talk about the least of these. It's doubtful that they would affirm the rest of the things that Jesus says in this passage. And again, they may be calling us to generosity to the poor, which is a very Christian thing to do. But that's not what this passage is about. Well, what is it about? Here I want to finish, finish, I'm about halfway done, with four principles, four principles that emerge from this text. I'm more than halfway done. Don't get disheartened. Um, Four principles that emerge from this text, all right? Uh, One of them is a cause for celebration. We start with celebration. Number one, Jesus will reign. Jesus will reign. He says, when the Son of Man comes in glory... And all the angels are come with him, and he sits on his glorious throne. There is nothing this earth has produced that is so beautiful as it will be when the Lord Jesus comes in his heavenly glory, and he is coming to reign. This is how history as we know it will end when the Lord Jesus returns. And this passage connects the Son of Man with the King, the reigning King, and Jesus associate here closely with the Son of Man more than uh, explicitly before. Remember the the question the disciples asked him back in chapter 24 that got all this started? What will be the sign of your coming? And he says, here, when the Son of Man comes. Makes me think, I've quoted this a number of times, it's worth reading again, Daniel 7. Daniel the prophet in the Old Testament has that vision of the end of the age. And look what it says in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached God, his father, the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And he, the son of man, was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the one who's coming to reign. He does what God does. Every Sunday when we gather together and we say or sing or pray, Jesus is Lord, we're doing so in anticipation of this glad day when he comes. Now, you should remember, it's important to remember, we're reading the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus delivers these lines when just a few days in his future from what happens, or from when he says these words, in just a few days, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to hang on the cross. The the returning Lord of glory is going to be the rejected Lamb of Calvary. Has there ever been such a contrast in all of creation? The one who... Considered equality with God, not something that he had to hang on to. He was in the form of God, a very nature God, but he took to himself the nature of a servant and became obedient, obedient even unto death. 
He came from such heights to such depths so that he might rescue us who ourselves were in those depths and be raised up with him. What a contrast in this passage. Jesus will reign. Now, secondly, though, principle, this reminds us, this passage reminds us with sobriety. We celebrate his reign with sobriety. We think about this, Jesus will judge. Jesus will judge. This is a reminder to us in this passage of the accountability of all human beings to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's striking in the Bible how comprehensive the judgments are. In this passage, it's all nations. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes to the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians, and look what he says about the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, another judgment described in the Bible, all the dead will stand before God, both small and great, no matter where your body is buried, on a mountain, in the sea, in the ground, God will, you will stand before God. And there's two outcomes and two outcomes alone of that judgment. It's actually a theme in Matthew, dividing the world into twos. I don't know if you've noticed this. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there are two gates. One of them is broad, one of them is narrow. There are two trees. One produces good fruit, one produces bad fruit. There are two houses, one that stands, one that collapses. There are two prophets, false prophets and true prophets. In Matthew chapter 13, there's two types of seed, two types of fish. In Matthew 21, there's two sons. In Matthew 25, we've just been looking at this, two sets of virgins, uh, bridesmaids, two servants, a, weak, a wicked one and a, a wise one, uh, a foolish one and a faithful one. Two, two. The, the world, Jesus divides into two. And here there's sheep and there's goats. And everyone knows that sheep and goats have to be separated. Well, everyone who's listening to Jesus knows that. You can get the sheep and the goats to graze. They can graze together all day, and that's just fine. But at nighttime, when it gets cold, goats are not as good at keeping themselves uh, warm uh, like sheep are. Sheep have better coats than the goats. So the sheep don't have to be gathered together quite so much. But the goats do. You've got to separate your flock at nighttime for the protection of, of the goats. Everybody knows sheep and goats have got to be separated. And in this passage, Jesus says to the sheep, come, come. And to the goats, he says, verse 41, depart, depart from me. Um, one to eternal life, one to eternal fire. There are, there are, are Christians, tender-hearted tender-hearted brothers and sisters who read the gospel of Matthew and they struggle over this eternal fire, eternal fire. How can that be? Well, verse 46 pairs them together. If the punishment is not eternal, then neither is the life. They're both everlasting realities. Did you notice the difference, though? Uh, he, he says, we already talked about this a little bit, take your inheritance, verse 34, the kingdom prepared for you. The kingdom is prepared for you. 
Who is the, uh, for whom is the eternal fire prepared? Verse um, 41, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It will also be the eternal abiding place of those who refuse to turn and trust in the Lord Jesus. It's a sobering passage of Scripture. Now, principle number three, we move on. Jesus will judge according to our works. This is going to take some thought. Jesus will judge according to our works. Think carefully. This is a theme in all the judgments of the Bible. We stand before God uh, based on our works. 2 Corinthians 5.10. I read it a minute ago. I'm going to read it again quickly. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us Why? For the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. This is not often how we think about standing before God, is it? Works, I'll be careful, works are not how you earn your place, but they are the expression of the fact that you are where you belong. Let me explain that a little bit more. Um, We talk sometimes uh, when we when we uh, encourage one another about uh, sharing the good news about Jesus with other people, people who don't believe, we, are, we encourage each other sometimes to ask the question, if you were to die today and to stand before God, and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? It's a good question to ask. It's the most important question anybody can ever ask you. It's the most important question you can ever answer. If you were to die today and to stand before God, as you surely will, and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Here's the wrong answer according to the Bible. The wrong answer according to the Bible is to look at God and say, I've been a good person. I'm a good person. I've done good things. I, you weigh them out. My good things will outweigh my bad things. And so I'm, I'm a good person. Um, you're also, how can I say this kindly? Deceived about your good works and your bad works. They don't, they don't balance that way. That's, that's the wrong answer. The right answer, if you were to stand before God tonight and God were to say, uh, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? The right answer to that question is, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I don't deserve to come in, but I'm not coming on my own name. I'm coming in Jesus' name, and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. and That's why I'm here. That's, that's the only... only a claim that I have. That's the right answer. This passage, though, suggests, and all the judgment passages suggest, that there's a follow-up question after the, uh, why should I let you into heaven? The follow-up question is, ah, so you believe in Jesus. Excellent. Do you have any proof that you have believed in Jesus? Do you have any proof that you've believed in Jesus? And the answer will be what we have done. In this passage, it was how they treated the people of Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you'll treat his people differently. It is the expectation of the New Testament that every true believer in Jesus will have evidence of it in their lives. It may be very small, it may be invisible to most people, but the evidence will surely be there. Just think about one of the famous converts in all of the Bible. The the Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And in the morning when they were hung on the cross, 
The Bible tells us that the two thieves were both involved in mocking Jesus, making fun of him for, uh, uh, well, if, you, if you're a savior, why don't you save us and save yourself too, both of them. Something happened to one of those thieves throughout the day. I don't know what it was. Um, maybe there was more conversation with Jesus. Maybe he saw how Jesus suffered, but he, he changed during the day. And, and he, he said, changed his tune, and he started saying, don't make fun of Jesus. Don't make fun of him uh, he, to the other thief. You and I are here. We deserve to be on this cross. He doesn't. He's innocent. Stop it. And he turned to Jesus and he said, remember me today when you come into your paradise. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, he said. Ha, that's quite a leap of faith to say to a crucified man to talk to him about his kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's all he had. That was the only evidence that he believed in Jesus that he had was that he defended Jesus on the cross. Those 30 seconds, those 45 seconds. Now, I want you to imagine something. This is not the way it will be, but just use your imagination for a minute. Someday you stand before God and, and well, here, it's Jesus, right, in this passage. You stand before Jesus and, and Jesus says, why should I let you into heaven? Why should I give you eternal life? And you say, because I'm trusting in you. <laughs> you died on the cross for my sins and my faith is in you. And Jesus says, do you have any proof that you believed? And you say, uh, and Jesus says, don't worry, I got the records here. And he turns around to his heavenly file cabinet and he flips through and he finds your file. And some of you have been followers of Jesus for 70 years, so your file's thick, and he pulls it out, and boom, it falls down. This is a file like a 95-year-old cardiac patient at his doctor's office, okay? It's just thick, right? <laughs> just thick. And Jesus says, now let's look here through your file, and he says, huh. he says, I see a report here about the VBS that you hosted that you ran at your church in 1994. I remember that. And I remember all the work that you did to prepare that VBS. And <laughs> you made your husband dress up like John the Baptist. And when he ate what those kids thought were real bugs, they, they, they screamed. And I think that was hilarious. And I remember that. I remember that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that work that you did. And he turns the page. Oh, <laughs> here's a report on Mrs. Yojansky. Remember her? She lived down the street. She stopped driving after she plowed her Buick through her, park, uh, through her garage. And, and so for seven years after that, you gave her a ride to church every Sunday. And, and when you baked cookies, you sent them down the street with, with your kids. And, and they drew pictures, and they ended up on her refrigerator. And you took care of her and welcomed her into your home and... You know, usually old ladies that have followed Jesus for a long time are supposed to be nice, but she was kind of mean. I mean, she was mine, but she was mean, and you loved her, and I'm, I'm, so, I'm so proud of you. Then Jesus flips the page, and he says, oh, <laughs> I remember this. It was that summer that there wasn't anybody available to weed the, the landscaping at church like there should have been, and you went to your job, and you worked 12 hours and then after your 12-hour shift, you showed up at church and nobody else was there and it was dark. You had a flashlight. You were weeding by flashlight. And you don't think anybody saw, and, um, you don't think anybody saw that 
And, and only three people who came on the next Sunday actually noticed there were less weeds in the, in the, the bed. But I saw, and I, I want you to know, I, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm, I'm so proud of you. And then you turn the page, and Jesus says, oh, <laughs> here's 50 pages about your adoption that you went through. All that paperwork you went through to welcome that child into your house. Oh, my goodness. And she was hard. And, and, and I, I'm so proud of you for what you did. Thank you. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come, come into the kingdom prepared for you. There's your thick old file you walk in. The guy behind you is that thief who was hanging on the cross, and he's a little nervous. And Jesus says, ha, why should I let you in? And he says, well, you told me to be here. Okay, so he says that, right? Okay, yes. Do you have any proof that you believed? And, and, and uh, uh, thief on the cross, he's high. So Jesus, don't worry, I got it. And he turns to his file and he pulls out the thinnest file of all files that has ever existed. And, and, and he opens it up, and this little piece of paper flutters to the, to the ground. It's not even the size of a post-it note. And, and he, he picks it up, and Jesus says, here's a report I remember of that horrible day. And, and I had no friends that day, but you spoke up for me. Hi, thank you so much. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the kingdom that has been prepared for you. Every true believer will stand before God based on Jesus' righteousness, and every single believer will have evidence of their faith too. You're going to be surprised. I think you'll be surprised at some of the things that Jesus remembers that you don't or that you didn't think mattered and that did very much to him. There'll be some things that you've done that Jesus won't be impressed by that don't make the file. He, he warned us about this, remember? If you do your acts of kindness to be seen by others, that's your only reward. Remember he said that? Hmm. We stand on Christ, and the evidence of it is how we have served. Principle number four. Jesus calls us to care for the least, especially those who are his. Let's not miss the heart of this passage, the emphasis of this passage, the repetition in this passage, the hungry, the sick, the thirsty, the naked, the strangers, the imprisoned. Let's not miss out on this. We love one another for Jesus' sake, especially those at the bottom. This is how Christians change the world from the bottom up. Not necessarily from the top down, but from the bottom up. Top-down work is good. We have friends who are engaged in work at the top-down. Rob Fields is, uh, does evangelism and discipleship in Harrisburg with our, our representatives, and in Delaware with our representatives, and sometimes in Washington, D.C. I'm grateful. Jim and Helen live in Boston, and they work with the cream of the intellectual crop of the world, students who've come from around the world to get educated in Boston, and they share the good news about Jesus with them, changing the world from the top-down. That's good. But most of the time, Christians change the world from the bottom up. Why do we do that? Because that's what Jesus did for us. He came to rescue people who were lost and broken and fragile and discouraged. You can't be a Christian 
if uh, you already have your life together. You don't need a savior. Jesus takes those who are very little and he makes them his brothers and sisters. This dividing line that Jesus speaks about is going to be very clear when he returns. And I have good news for you today. We're one day closer to his return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today and we give you great thanks for your mercy to us. We're thankful to you for your mercy in telling us about this accountability uh, to you, reminding us of it. We give you thanks for your grand generosity that you say to even surprised servants, well done, come into my kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. How how grateful we are to you for your grand generosity to us. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see again and hearts that are broken for those who are the least among us in our congregation and in our community, too. Uh, in this way, help us to follow the Lord Jesus who came down so low for us. We do pray in anticipation of this glad day when the Son of Man returns in glory and sits on his glorious throne. We pray with the Apostle John that you would come quickly. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.